This is a Federal News Network podcast. A long-awaited reform bill to save the Postal Service about $50 billion over the next decade has notched a step forward. The House passed the Postal Service Reform Act, which would eliminate the requirement for USPS to pre-fund retiree health benefits 75 years into the future. The bill now heads to the Senate, where it does have bipartisan support, and if enacted, this would be the first major piece of postal reform legislation to make it through Congress in more than 15 years. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has the latest. Jory, tell us what this bill would do relative to USPS's deteriorating balance sheet. The short answer to that is that this latest piece of legislation would actually resolve a lot of the issues that were created from the last piece of legislation that Congress passed in 2006 on this issue. It would do two really big things here. It would eliminate the mandate for USPS to prefund retiree health benefits well into the future, and it would also require all future postal retirees to to enroll in Medicare. Between those two big provisions, that is projected to save $50 billion over the next decade. And there's actually another big piece to this legislation. It would also eliminate the agency's obligation to cover $57 billion in scheduled payments it hasn't made to the Retiree Health Benefits Fund since 2012. It would essentially forgive those debts, which is one less thing for the agency to worry about. All right. And uh, does this bill have pretty good support, you said, in the Senate? Looks like it could have a chance there. It does. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says that the legislation is on track to get a Senate floor vote by next week. And we heard from Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee Chairman Gary Peters. He introduced that companion legislation in the Senate. He says that this bill has 14 Democratic and 14 Republican co-sponsors in the Senate. So pretty good margins there. Beyond Congress, this has 200 organizations supporting this bill. That includes postal unions. This includes key voices in industry associations. And it also includes the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, or NARF. That's pretty significant because they had some concerns with earlier versions of this bill that they had warned would have raised health premiums for non-postal federal employees. And what about the Postal Service itself? What do the executives there have to say about it? They're really happy about this, too. This is actually the sole legislative ask of the Postal Service's 10-year reform plan. We heard from Postmaster General Lewis DeJoy on this. He says that this bill has been long overdue and is excited to see this pass through Congress. He was actually on Capitol Hill on Tuesday for this vote and was meeting with some key lawmakers on this. We also heard from one of the members of the USPS Board of Governors, Ron Stroman. He's a former Deputy Postmaster General himself. He said in the context of USPS now delivering these free rapid COVID tests to households that the USPS has a really impressive digital infrastructure with covidtest.gov. But he says if the public expects more of these things to happen in the future, USPS really needs to invest in its infrastructure, which is what this legislation will do. Even as the Postal Service continues to demonstrate its value to the nation, the reality is that our IT processing, operational and transportation infrastructure is badly undercapitalized and in desperate need of reform. That is why it is so vital for the Congress to quickly pass the Postal Service Reform Act. This bill will free the Postal Service from the unfair and unprecedented health benefit mandates that have handcuffed the Postal Service for well over a decade. Well, it sounds like things are gelling if there are 28 senators 
14 from each party behind this. I don't know of any bill in the last couple of years that's had that kind of support, Jory. And meanwhile, short term, how is the USPS doing financially? They've been able to narrow their losses somewhat, correct? In the recent past, yes, they have been able to narrow their losses. The latest here, though, is is a little troubling. They ended the first quarter of fiscal 2022 with a $1.5 billion loss. That's especially troubling because the first quarter is supposed to be when they are doing the best financially. That includes their performance during the peak holiday operations when they are rushing around and doing you know record-breaking deliveries of packages and mail and everything that they do. So that is certainly very striking. And when you compare it especially to their performance from the last fiscal year for that quarter, they had a $318 million net income, a rare net income for a quarter. And so those are very striking results. The Postal Service says that part of the reason for this loss is an increase in costs driven by inflation, as well as increased fuel costs. And that brings us to the topic of that new next generation fleet. That's always in contention with the administration because that contract having been let during the last administration, what's the latest there? Yeah, uh, short-lived honeymoon, I guess, between the Postal Service and Congress. The House Sustainable Energy and Environment Coalition, which consists of 70 members of the House, they sent a letter to Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, and they are pressing the agency to really kind of foot the bill for an electric vehicle fleet, or at least make electric vehicles a larger complement of its next generation fleet. The latest on this is that The Build Back Better Act would have given USPS $6 billion to make electric vehicles a bigger part of its fleet. That, of course, is unlikely to pass in its current form. And so given this legislation where the Postal Service is going to save $107 billion, some of that up front and some of that over the years to come, lawmakers are saying, well, surely you can stomach the $6 billion to make electric vehicles a reality here. Well, it's all funny money anyway. Who knows what they're going to save? And, you know, spending projected savings is always iffy in the federal government. But things are moving on the postal front. Whatever's happening, it's the frost that has been around policy there. It's really melting. Yeah. To give you some context here, I've been tracking this policy area, this this bill or some variation of it for the longest time, for as long as I've been here at Federal News Network. And so to see it more than likely cross the finish line here is really significant. All right. And uh, Jory's going to mail a letter to himself and see if it gets there before he retires. I'm kidding. I use postal first class stamps all the time. And in reality, the service is pretty darn good. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his latest story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent 
And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on 
what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second. Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.